welcome everybody to this evening's talk of Mixed Methods Research in the Real World. I'm delighted to welcome uh, a former colleague and friend, Dr Cathy Pollard from the University of the West of England in, in Bristol, who's going to, to, uh, to do this evening's talk. Um, she's going to be um, sort of talking for about 40 to 40 to 45 minutes and then we'll have a little bit of time at the end for questions. So if you can save your questions up until the end, that would be great. Okay. Okay. Well, right. Well, thank you very much for coming <coughs> along here this evening, and Margaret, thank you for inviting me to come here. I'm delighted to be here. So, as you will see, my title, I think, says quite a lot about what I think about mixed methods research. Um, so, for those of you who are wondering about it, um, I've been working in research, mixed methods, and both quantitative and qualitative now for about oh, 20 years and I found that the assumptions often and particularly on the part of students often is that research is this nice neat tidy process because of course we produce nice neat tidy looking findings or results um, and of course that that may be true for lab-based work it's certainly not true for social research and all my work has been in the field of health and social care, so most health and social care, or a lot of health and social care research, actually sort of qualifies as social research. And of course, I mean, if one just stops to think about it for a second, the reason, one of the, there are two main reasons, I think, for why research, social research is so messy. Um, and the one are just the vagaries of human nature. We're always, you know, it's, it's people who are actually conducting research. It's people who are participating in research. And we like to think of ourselves as rational beings, but frankly, I don't think that's the case at all. We certainly have some rational faculties, but a lot of our behavior is driven by impulses that are very, very far from being rational. And that situation doesn't suddenly get held in abeyance because we're involved in a research project from either end. If anything, once their sort of pressures, those sort of impulses can, can be highlighted or emphasized. So there's that aspect of it. The other aspect is actually our external environment because of course we're going out into the world to do research. We're actually having to travel, to go to places, and I'll just say leaves on the line. You know, you just never know when something is going to happen that's going to literally derail the process. So we're always, always having to deal with the possibility of error when we're doing social research because it's a very complex process. When you start thinking about doing mixed methods as part of social research, you actually then increase the possibilities of messiness exponentially. So I suppose the question then becomes, if, if that is a problem, is, is why do mixed methods research? Well, as I said, I've been working in the, in the field now for, for quite a long time. I've been working in health and social care generally, either clinically or um, in, in, as, as a researcher for about 25 years. And I think the more I stay in it, the more I feel very strongly that if we are producing, if we're doing research, we actually need to produce results 
that are useful and can be practically implemented. And as far as I'm concerned, doing mixed methods research really aids us in that process. And so I think I sort of reveal myself very firmly as a pragmatist by actually um, sort of laying out my stall in this way. Um, so there, there, you know, there, there's quite a lot of, there's been a lot of theory written about uh, mixed methods research. There, different researchers have got different um, ideas and attitudes towards mixed methods research. You know, there is the idea that, that quantitative research and qualitative research are actually dichotomous. I, I think that's a pretty outdated stance. If you have um, a, lot, a lot of people now writing about mixed methods research being on a continuum where you have qualitative research at one end and quantitative research at the other. Uh, and a lot of researchers talk about um, using mixed methods in terms of depth and breadth. Now for me, I, that, that's, that sort of chimes with my own feelings about it. Um, and in fact, I, when I think about mixed methods research, I tend to sort of, if you like, visualize it as, almost as a cross in that you've got a broad, the quantitative research and quantitative approaches give you a nice broad uh, picture of what's going on. So you can find out what's happening. If you use, and the qualitative research for me is like the vertical arm, where you're actually really being able to get, go into depth to find out why something's happening, to understand it. So if we're going to actually, um, do come in, there's some couple of seats up at the front. So if we are going to really understand and produce work that's actually useful in health and social care, um, I think that it's somehow that intersection of the quantitative and the qualitative, which really gives us um, a, a it's our best chance of getting a comprehensive overview about a topic and really understanding it. We still have to deal with the problem of messiness. And particularly, we need to think about how can we produce robust results? We want to be able to trust our findings because otherwise it's, you might as well go home and not bother to even get started if you think you're gonna produce findings that are, are not reliable, not trustworthy, not credible. Um, so I'm gonna, I will come back to that a little bit later, but what I do want to do is at this point is, is um, just talk through some of the processes involved in conducting this sort of research. And to do that, I'm going to draw on my own experiences of two fairly large mixed methods projects or programs that I've actually been involved in. Right, so the first one I want to talk about um, is an evaluation um, of the UE interprofessional curriculum. And as you can see from the slide, it went from, it ran from 2001 to 2008. Um, and this was actually my, my first post, my first research post was on this project. I was appointed as the research associate on the project. And there was, um, it was funded by what was then, um, there was a point, <coughs> some of you will remember, some of you won't, that the, the, the way that the health services were organised, there were these workforce development confederations funded by the Department of Health in each region. And so this project was funded by the Avon and Work, uh, Avon Workforce, Avon Workforce Development Co Corporation. 
um, or confederation. Uh, so that was the first one I want to talk about. The second one is one that we've just finished, as you can see, started in 2014, carried on to 2017. Um, the, the data collection and analysis stopped a year ago and it's, we've been tweaking and amending the final report for the last year. Um, and this was, uh, again, an investigation of quality measurement in English community nursing. And that's quite a mouthful, so we shortened it to Quicken. So that's how we refer to it as Quicken, the Quicken study. And that was funded by the National Institute of Health Research. Um, and that was a multi-site, uh, multi-organisation study. So I'm going to talk about both of those. So firstly, what I want to do is just tell you a little bit more about each of them and then start thinking about some of the the issues that arose when we were actually doing these projects. So the UE interprofessional curriculum. Now at the time that this curriculum was introduced it was the idea of giving undergraduates the opportunity for interprofessional education, for learning together, for working together was, was brand new. It hadn't really been done very much at all. It was, it was starting to come in. So, and UWE was one of the first universities to introduce this curriculum right throughout the whole uh, professional programme for undergraduate students. But also, more importantly, it was, um, there, were, there was a module in each year and those modules were compulsory and they were assessed. So students couldn't choose whether or not to do them. They had to do them and they couldn't progress or graduate unless they'd actually passed those modules. And as you said, at that point we didn't have medical students actually in the university because they're educated at the University of Bristol, uh, but as in a slightly later iteration of the curriculum, we had medical students coming over from Bristol to join us in some of our interprofessional working, interprofessional curricula, but the evaluation at the time didn't include medical students but it had a lot of different um, other health professionals all on separate programs, uh, educational programs. And in their wisdom the faculty decided it would be a good idea to evaluate this new, new curriculum. So they'd got it sort of set up quite well. And these were the things we were interested in, really interesting in what the student attitudes were towards learning and working interprofessionally, collaboratively. Um, we were also looking at, at not just their attitudes, but what, how did they find the experience of learning interprofessionally, both in academic settings and in placement settings. And finally, we were interested in what, what was happening to the staff, because again, this was very new for staff. Staff were not used to having to um, work and, and, and facilitate students who actually were from a different professional discipline from themselves. So the whole thing was, was pretty brand new. Um, so what we decided on, what the design for the study was a, was, was a, realist, a realist evaluation. So there was very much a focus on um, linking contexts, mechanisms and outcomes. And the, the, one of the key questions that, that one asks in realist evaluation is what works for whom and why? Because, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious that you, know, you can have the same situation and bring people into it and they'll get different things from it. So we were really trying to tease out 
again, the, the complexities of the processes that students were actually um, being exposed to. So we designed a mixed methods research program um, and it was a concurrent, independent, equal status program and it incorporated five distinct studies. So the, 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 the mostly quantitative, although the study had some qualitative aspects to it, in fact it was the sur our survey was a mixed methods, but it was, it was very heavy on the, qualitative side, the quantitative side. Um, we wanted to find out about student attitudes and staff attitudes. So you can see over the course of the, of the, uh, of the program, we, con we collected you know, two, about 2,700 questionnaires. And please also do remember this was way before online surveys. We had to do everything with paper copies, so which had its own, own interesting times. Um, of those 2,700, rough, just over two and, a, two and a half thousand of them were actually um, student surveys. I think we had about, we only had about 60 or 70 staff questionnaires so most of those were student and we what we did was we we had to do um, we had four administrations so we as they came in the doors point in their second year when they qualified and a year out once they were in practice being practice for a year um, we also did it we had three qualitative studies looking at um, sorry, four qualitative studies, looking at non-participant ob observations. So we observed these interprofessional learning groups um, and we also went out and observed what was happening in the students on placement. Um, we did interviews, loads of interviews with students, some interviews with staff uh, in both placement areas and the academic staff. Um, and we did focus groups with students. The third year of the interprofessional module was delivered online, <coughs> so we analysed discussion boards from the groups and then we also analysed some of the module evaluation forms. So as I'm sure you can appreciate, we, we had a huge amount of data both to collect and to deal with and I'll talk about some of the issues around all that in a minute once I've just told you a bit about the other project. So the Quicken study. So as it says there, the aim was to determine, just to find out how is the quality of care actually measured in community nursing services. And the reason why this was of interest and, and why it got funded is that a couple of things are happening. You may, I don't know how many of you have got any uh, knowledge of the community nursing services, but the community services generally are being used more and more and more. The, the landscape has changed dramatically over the last 10 years or so and with the drive to get people out of hospital and not have people in hospitals. The community nurses are having to provide extremely skilled care to people who actually have um, very complex medical needs and who would previously have been cared for in hospital not at home. So that landscape has changed completely in terms of community nursing care. And while it's actually quite easy in a ward or a residential setting to see what's happening in terms of quality of care because things are happening and other people are watching 
in a domiciliary setting, the only people who know what the quality of care actually is like is the person receiving it and the person providing it. So obviously there is a need to make sure that there are robust uh, measures for, for, for measuring the quality of community, care, of, of community nursing. Now, in, again, I'll just digress slightly, but in healthcare generally in the UK and elsewhere, um, a, a very common way of measuring quality of the healthcare be delivered is by using quality indicators that is simply just a measure of care quality used to judge how good the service is. And the sort of indicator, an example of an indicator is something like, you know, staff should be trained, should be updated regularly about medicine administration, or um, every older person should be assessed for the risk of a fall, risk of falling. So you can see they're very, very specific statements usually, these quality indicators, which means that organisations providing care have rafts of them. Some of them are nationally mandated, but a lot of the, of the indicators that actually are in use are negotiated between clinical commissioning groups, CCGs, and the organisations providing their, their nursing services. Um, and obviously this applies to all the services that the CCGs commission from, from any, any healthcare providers, acute or community-based. Anyway, for these reasons, what we were interested in was seeing, is, is really finding out about the selection. How, 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 are, how are quality indicators chosen and why? How are they applied and why? What happens then? And how useful are they? Both for, you know, commissioners, managers, frontline nurses and patients and carers. So how useful are these indicators? So we were looking at the ones that are currently in use for community nursing. So it was an exploratory design. Again, it was a mixed method research project, sequential, interactive, but this one really had a, a qualitative bias as opposed to the, the curriculum, which was more an equal status uh, program. So we did a national survey to find out what quality indicators were being applied to community nursing in 2014. We contacted every, every CCG in the country, there's sort of 211 of them at the time, to find out what indicators they were using um, so that we could actually map what was actually happening across the country. And then also, one of the other reasons for, for doing the survey was to provide us with a pool from which we could select case sites because we wanted to do in-depth case sites as well and we had five case uh, sites in England and each case site was a clinical commissioning group and a um, and the provider of the community nursing services so they were sort of dyads uh, so that actually meant that we were dealing with 10 different organizations in our case sites um, we did individual interviews or group interviews um, and with right all the stakeholders involved. So again, that was NHS England representatives, commissioners, provider managers, um, nursing team leaders, frontline nurses, patients, carers. We, we managed to get a sort of pretty good representation across those groups. Um, we also sat in on 25 organisational meetings, some of them which were huge, as you can see by the, the number 
there of the people who actually attended. Um, and so we were interested in any, any meetings where quality was on the agenda. One of our, um, we had a couple of registered nurses working on the project, including the PI was a registered nurse, and um, she actually went out and did and shadowed community nurses to see what was actually happening out on the ground. And then also we, we were able to scrutinise some of the documentary data that was made available to us. Um, so again, both these projects had a huge amount of of, of data in them. Um, the, what I didn't say about the curriculum, the, the, the curriculum evaluation, is that we mixed methods sort of all the way along, but both in, in, in terms of data collection, data analysis, and also in the interpretation. Um, whereas with the, the Quicken study, it was very much in the um, initial data collection and analysis phases that we, that we mixed the methods. So timing and recruitment, I think so that the, the challenges of doing these sort of large studies where you're mixing methods is, is uh, you have to take into account that actually this, you're going to run into problems. Otherwise, you are really going to run into problems if you haven't sort of tried to anticipate them a little <coughs> beforehand. So with the IP curriculum evaluation, given that it was an evaluation, it was incredibly important to have baseline data. Right? You can't evaluate the effect of something if you don't know what's actually the status quo before you actually start implementing it. So the way, the, and, and this was compounded, our difficulties around this were compounded by the fact that the students were on 10 different timetables because they were twin different programs, they were 10 different timetables. And as I said, this was my first job as a research associate. I think I started in the beginning of the September in the job and the, um, we started data collection in the last week of September. And in my naivety, I'd assumed that somewhere in the faculty there would be some sort of central information about all the students. Not so. Because this had been, because of the, the, the history of how, you know, the, the areas like health care education have come into higher education, UWE um, had absorbed courses from about 10 different colleges, which meant that they all came in and they all had their way of doing things, they all had their separate admin staff and their separate admin processes. And, and although it was about 10 years after that amalgamation, it hadn't actually, they hadn't really moved much further in terms of centralising. So the first thing I had to do was to try and go around and find out where these students were going to be. Because we were absolutely bound by the student timetable, there was no slippage. We could not slip because if those students were in, they were in, and if they were out, they were out, and there was nothing that could be changed to accommodate the fact that we were doing research. Um, and again, this was made a little bit more difficult because the only time that actually suited all the programs for them to have a, 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 the first interprofessional module was the second week of the term. So we had to get 
them to complete questionnaires in the first week and we had to get everything organized and set up including some some training for some of the people doing it to actually be able to get into the groups and start observing so time pressure was was enormous in that particular project um, we had in that first administration we had over 850 questionnaires to to i think there were about 900 students in the in in that intake and we got a very very good response rate which was brilliant it's amazing what happens if you go into a room and you go here fill it in please and they go oh, all right especially in the first year it was great um and we d we did have ethical approval we'd gone to the through the ethics <laughs> ethics committee beforehand so we did have ethical ap approval um but you know it, it it was a real logistical exercise and of course the other thing was that we wanted to to you know be able to do um comparisons right the way through and so we had to work out a way of linking individual questionnaires. So we needed to know, you know, if, if I've got this person's questionnaire at the beginning and this person's questionnaire at the end, do they marry up? So we had to work out a way of doing that. And, and that's a sort of story in itself, but we did manage. Um, so as I said, there were, timing was, was quite, quite difficult in, in that particular project. Um, oh, and, and then of course, once they, because we followed them into practice, there was a the whole issue of trying to, to track them once they'd left the university. Because also we wanted to, to do interviews, we wanted to send them questionnaires, and, and so there was a whole issue around trying to, to manage that in the timescales that, 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 you know, that made sense. Um, Quicken project, um, the time pressures weren't quite the same, but they were still there because with an NIHR project, you, your milestones can slip a bit within the project, but you've got to deliver on time. I think you can probably negotiate about a fortnight if you're lucky, if you, if you really slip. But actually, it, it, you have to deliver. You have to deliver on time. And we had to get our survey done because we needed the the uh, we needed to be have it analysed, so that actually we would have a really good idea of what was happening out there, so that, that would inform the data collection in the case sites, um, and also said so we needed this pool for sampling, so we had to get it done. And of course, the first major hurdle was actually just getting hold of CCGs. There is a list of them on a website with contact details, but you phone the numbers and you say, I want to talk to somebody who knows something about quality measurement and community nursing, and it's sort of, what? You know, you don't actually get much in the way of, you know, I think after about, and it takes ages, you know, because then you do get a name and then you can never get hold of that person and they don't answer emails and, you know, all the normal problems you have about contacting people in organizations and trying to make sure you've got the right person and we eventually wound up um, because a few CCGs said to us please would you just send us a freedom of information request um, so we eventually took the decision the project team took the decision that's how we would approach it there's some issues about because that's the public purse again so there are issues about that but it, it was 
it seemed to be that was our choice, that or just scrap the survey, and we couldn't scrap the survey. So we did do that, and we, did, we, we got a, a reasonable, I think we got about a 70% um, response rate, so we were quite happy with that, um, and got a lot of useful information. Um, our next hurdle was the case site recruitment. Now, in theory, this is all supposed to be streamlined now. This was very different. We, we, while we were doing the survey, we got ethical approval from an NHS ethics committee. But then we had to get into each organisation. The CCGs weren't too difficult. They actually sort of varied. And although once we, because our, our host CCG had given us, we had letters of permission, etc., that theoretically should have actually just been acceptable everywhere. Not the case at all. Every single organisation we want to wanted us to go through their processes. So we were jumping through one, well crawling by that time, through one hoop after another. And I think we'd allowed six months for recruitment and it actually took us over a year. I mean we managed to get them but of course it did have a knock-on effect on the time we had then for actual data collection and particularly for data analysis and I'll talk about that in a minute. So I just want to make the point that actually if you're going to do these big studies it's really important to have excellent administrative support or skills and, and people who don't appreciate good people supporting them in administrative capacities are, are, are idiots as far as I'm concerned. You can't do any of this sort of stuff without good administrative um, support. And the other thing is that, you know, you need to be flexible so that you can adapt because you can't assume you're going to be able to do your project exactly as you thought you were going to do it. The other challenge is actually putting together research teams and not just putting them together but actually working with them. Um, so happened, just, it's just coincidental, and in fact I only realised that when I was putting this together sometime during this week, that we had the same number of people in each team, on, on each project, so we had 14 project team members on each study. Um, now the, the UE team was all based, I mean one strength of it is everybody, or one, one thing that made it easier in terms of messiness was that everybody was based in the same place. Um, and also, um, I was the only person who didn't sort of know quite a lot about the, 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 the topic of interprofessional education when I started. Um, so, but we did have interesting things happening in that, um, in that team because we obviously, we had, they were mostly all lecturers and they were, they were coming from different um, health professional backgrounds and social care professional backgrounds. And it was quite interesting sitting, being a fly on the wall sometimes, and watching how the interprofessional working was going on within the research team, which considering that was our topic, was, was yeah, it was amusing at times to say, and, and caused some problems as well sometimes. Um, the Quicken team was very different. It was, it was, there were five organisations involved in this project. So as it's an NIHR project, it had to be hosted by an NHS organisation. So Bristol CCG was the host. Um, and then UWE was the lead academic institution. But we also had um, 
input and researchers from University of Bristol, London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and the University of Manchester. So it was a, a team that was drawn together of people who some knew each other, some didn't to start off with. Again, people with very different <coughs> clinical and professional uh, backgrounds and from all over the country and we had to you know there were times when you just needed everybody to get together you could do a lot by Skype and, and video conferencing etc but that wasn't always successful um, so so we needed to do both really so there was quite a, a there were sort of, again, logistics involved in making sure that you can get everybody together and both those teams. You want a proper, a good team meeting, you know, just handling people's diaries is something else again. Um, so what was important in both of them was to make sure that we had people with the requisite skills and expertise, right? And obviously, once you're doing mixed methods, this this is an issue that you've really got to think about because not only do you have do you need people with the you know the the required skills but you also often need to do some sort of mediation and interpretation between people coming from different research paradigms and that was certainly the case in both studies um, I mean, I think we managed it fine, but it was certainly an issue that actually came up that, you know, trying to explain to a medical colleague that actually doing qualitative research was a good idea. Yeah, for example, trying to explain to a social work colleague, on the other hand, that actually we really needed the quantitative work. So again, that just added to everything we were doing. Um, the other thing, especially, I mean, as I said, in the, in the uh, curriculum evaluation, everybody had, um, uh, most people had, had, had knowledge of the topic. They were all educators interested in interprofessional learning. In the Quicken team, we really needed people with um, skills in specific areas in terms of knowledge. So we obviously we needed people who knew something about community nursing. We needed people who knew something about quality management and we need people, people who knew something about um, uh, commissioning. But uh, and the sort of dynamics of what we were doing was quite interesting too because with, as I said, with these disparate people and these large teams um, it's, and, and going back to what I said right at the beginning about uh, our not being rational beings all the time, you know, it, it can be quite difficult managing a team of that size when you've, you know, they're interpersonal issues, they're interprofessional issues, interparadigmatic issues, if there's such a word. Um, you know, so a lot needs to be thought about and planned and I'm not always the best person. I'll put my hand on my heart, you know, I lose my temper every now and then and start snapping at people but actually that works immensely well the first time i did it i was really surprised i thought oh everybody went oh yes oh it was wonderful i thought oh, i must i must deploy you know employ that that strategy more often but it is something you know to actually you have to do because every decision and all the activities need to be negotiated especially when we needed in the quicken project when we needed to start thinking about timing and changing protocols slightly it all had to be negotiated with the full project team so that was yeah something to do So of course we still had to think about how do we, we you know, we've got this, we're doing these big projects, we're doing, you know, we, we're trying to deal with all the complexity that arises. Um, 
how are we going to ensure robustness? So in the curriculum evaluation, it was very important that people collecting the data were not involved in delivering the program, the curriculum, because otherwise, you know, what good is the quality of, of, of data that's collected from a student who doesn't want to say something to upset a lecturer? So we had to make, that was a, something we really had to be careful about. Um, we had to validate our questionnaire. There were a few, there weren't, there were some similar questionnaires out there, but there weren't any that actually were quite right for us. So we had to design our own, and there were four attitude scales, and they each needed validating. So that, again, that's a whole separate exercise. <laughs> and I learned about psychometric um, testing. I learned a lot on the ground in that particular project. Um, obviously, doing qualitative research, it was important to consider inter-research reliability, so we had a lot of uh, collaboration and discussion about the instruments we were using for collecting data and also for analysing coding and analysing and, and, and the themes coming out. Um, we were able to triangulate our quantitative and qualitative data, and that was really useful um, because it actually really allowed us to say, well, this is what we're seeing in the attitudes. This is what we're getting from all the interviews and the, and the qualitative data. So we can really, as I said, it gave us a great sort of comprehensive picture of what was happening. Um, and I think the, 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 if you like, the proof of the pudding is that we've actually, between 2004 and 2012, we published 16 peer-reviewed papers from that curriculum evaluation. So I know it's held in good, good repute, you know. I mean, I still get invitations to talk about it from various places. I was in Norway a couple of years ago. I was asked, I get, in, I get requests for, us to, for our questionnaire to be used on a regular basis. So I think we managed to actually produce a, re a robust research program. Um, in the Quicken study, uh, robustness sort of was a different, it, it had a different flavour of trying to do, of trying to ensure robustness. Um, the first thing we had to do was this, the survey data analysis. We really needed relevant, uh, the relevant expertise because what was happening, when we asked people to send us their, their local quality indicators for community nursing, um, a lot of the indicators that were sent were, were not necessarily, I think eventually actually because people didn't know, we, we eventually just started asking people for just their community indicators because often people couldn't tease out, the people we were talking to couldn't tease out whether actually they applied to community nurses or not. And we got something like over 800 uniquely worded quality indicators to analyse through the survey. And while you could look at some of them and go, yeah, that's definitely for community nursing. Without specialist expertise, you couldn't always tell. So we had a, a, one of our project team members was a um, community nurse manager, and the other one was a commission of community services. So we pulled them in to look at everything that we weren't sure about the rest of the researchers, because there were four of us from the team actually collecting data. Um, but they also came in to help analyse the survey. So that was the first thing we really had to do. Um, again, they were, we had to do the, the normal uh, inter-research reliability processes in terms of the qualitative data. But also, as I said, we had time constraints which we hadn't anticipated. So we had to 
change our analysis plan slightly. We had wanted to do, to produce five separate within case reports. So we had one for each uh, case site. We didn't have time to do that. And fortunately, we were really, really lucky. And this is just where luck comes into it. Everything that was happening in one site seemed to be happening in all the others. They were all struggling with the same sort of issues. So in fact, we could still do everything justice by just doing an across case analysis. So that's what we had to do to, to just be able to finish the project on time. So we did, we've done good cross case analysis, but we didn't manage to do the, the within case. Um, one of the things we, we did about really sort of trying to make sure that we could uh, be yeah, have some confidence in our findings. We did these stakeholder engagement events. We did 10 events nationally. Um, and I think there was something like 200 and about 250 people involved. So we invited people from right across the different stakeholder groups to come and we shared some of our findings. We got them to talk about issues. And, and certainly everything we were doing seemed to resonate with the people who came to these events. So that was, that was really um, encouraging. Um, so, so far we've got three peer-reviewed publications out. Um, and our main study report is currently in press with the NIHR and should be available any day now. We just, just in fact, I've got a few tiny amendments still to do, uh, sort of editorial tweaks, answer a few queries on Monday and hopefully it should be in the public domain before the end of the month. Right. So some of the key findings, um, as I said, I want, I, want project, I want to be involved in research that gives us useful findings, okay, for practice or education. Um, so just a couple of the key findings were that um, under, you know, it, it, we have managed to, to show that if people go through undergraduate into professional working, it does, there is an improvement in professional practice in terms of interprofessional working, which then does seem to have a knock-on effect in terms of patient experience. Um, and students don't necessarily appreciate the, the benefits of IP working until they're out there. They all complained bitterly about the interprofessional learning modules. They didn't enjoy them. But when we interviewed them, once they were out in practice, they were saying, oh God, I wish I'd paid more attention. I hadn't realized how important it was until I started working. And I thought that was quite, I think that's quite an interesting finding in, in terms of the current um, focus on, on, on student experience. Because sometimes I think students just actually need to learn stuff, whether they realize at the time why <laughs> you know so anyway that that's a whole nother issue but I did think that was quite an interesting finding um, I think the thing about the quicken study that's been really useful is that because most quality indicators are designed for study settings um, at least for, for acute settings there, there has been a tendency to just go oh well this one works in the acute setting so we'll just roll it out to the community doesn't work situations are much too different. So that's a, a key a key finding. Um, and the other interesting thing for us was that there seemed to be um, 
uh, you've got the, the, the managers and the commissioners on one side saying this is what we need to know about, this is what we need to measure. On the other side you've got the patients, the carers and the frontline nurses going actually these are the things we need to know about, these are the things that are important. And a lot of the QIs that are currently in use don't address the things that the patients and the frontline staff think are important. So, and I think that's also a really, really interesting finding. Um, we've got a website, if you Google Quicken, I think we're the second entry that comes up. So we have got a website with a lot more information about the project on that. Um, so, benefits of using mixed methods. Well, in the curriculum evaluation without a doubt our questionnaire validation, because we had four scales, three of them we could find other scales that we could use to, to look at for concurrent uh, validation, again, uh, you know, establish concurrent validity, but one we couldn't. The only way we could do it was to administer the questionnaire, interview people, compare data from both. So that was really useful. As I said, we were able to triangulate um, the, the, the questionnaire data and the scale data and the qualitative data. And um, so again, using mixed methods gave the program and our findings credibility that I don't think it would have had without without having used both. And the Quicken study, um, it really allowed us that, that as I said, the, the um, mixing happened really in the, in the data collection and the analysis for the survey. And that was invaluable because it gave us a really detailed picture of what was happening in terms of quality measurement. Um, Obviously, it allows us to do this case site sampling, but it also informed the design of the case sites um, study data collection because we could go and see. We, we, we were going into those sites with a, a, a fairly comprehensive, because I said we'd had breadth and depth overview of what was happening in the rest of the country. So we were able to locate the, the organisations in which we were actually doing the study um, within the, the, the national picture and that was really useful from our time. Um, so I think really doing both, using both really enhanced the quality of our work in that study. So my conclusion is that yes it's messy but it's worth it. So thank you. Okay. Yeah.